last time we started Sefer Shoftim, and I feel like we have to do a very quick review. For those of you who weren't last time or didn't uh, manage to listen to the first year, we're just beginning a new Sefer. And Sefer Shoftim has some very um, unusual features, let's call it. All right, so number one, number one, it's important to really uh, see Sefer Shoftim as a sequel to Sefer Shua, Sefer Yoshua, and, and as a contrast, it's very much a contrast. And um, what we have to know about Sefer, yeah, Sefer Shoftim, first of all, it's characterized by a very unusual set of um, leaders, Shoftim. No two are the same. They have different functions and different types. Um, there's no central authority. We don't have a king. We don't have a, a leader in that sense. So everything is more or less Hefker. Um, there is a very low spiritual level, very low. The Jewish people go down to some terrible depths. It's not a good time. Whereas in Sefer Yoshua, the Jewish people are always, you know, almost universally righteous, which is quite amazing. Chairs. Super annoying. Chair is broken and keeps, keeps going down and down. Um, uh, there's no prophecy or very little prophecy, and there is disunity. It immediately becomes apparent in chapter one that we're dealing with a very different situation. We have, whereas Yeshua is very clear, he's the leader, God gives him commands, everyone is, has his back, they're doing whatever he wants. This is all going very well. In Sefer Shoftim, the first thing is they, they, they ask God what to do. They're like, stop, what do we do? Who starts? Who's going to help? What do we do? And every tribe is for itself. This tribe does this, this tribe does that. There's not a unity. And the, and the most central problem with the beginning of Sefer Shoftim in chapter one is that it's actually a list. It's a list of conquests that don't happen. So the conquest which we discussed extensively, you know, in, in Sefer Yeshua, the, you know, the, it's not so politically correct and all this, but really it's important to understand. The command is to get rid of these people and the Jewish people give them choices. They say, you can leave with the, the seventh nation, the Girgashim leave. You can make peace, uh, really only the Givon and make peace under the terms of the uh, B'nai Yisrael, which is they have to accept the seven laws of B'nai Noah, and they have to be subservient to the Jews. So they give Onim really are the only ones who choose that option. Or you can make war, so they make war, and they're supposed to be wiped out. Now, the question is, why don't the Jews finish the conquest? There's a number of reasons. As we go through Perak Bet, 
we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take a look at what those reasons are. But a lot of it is, you know, I think if we can compare it to today, you know, you, you don't really want to be the conqueror. They've got most of the land, the Jewish people, in, you know, came in into the land of Israel today. And nobody is, you know, anxious to go and, and make wars. So there is a certain lack of will, a desire to like, you know, just have some peace. But the, the problem is that there's a reason that a Kodesh Baruch Hu wants to get rid of the seven nations. And the reason is they're, they're pagan, they're idolatrous, they are morally depraved. So many things, <laughs> look at you, so many things they do that are completely um, antithetical to Judaism. And the fear, the fear is that if these people remain in the land, they will be a stumbling block. So that's sort of the background. Now I'm going to screen share. Um, and so we'll look at some of this inside. Okay. So first of all, if I close this, okay. First of all, the basic outline of the Sefer, here we have the, the geography of it. We have the two and a half tribes on the East Bank, the nine and a half tribes on the West Bank. And actually, if we think about this, everybody goes to their own place, yeah? So we went through chapter one, the conquests of Yehuda, who did pretty well as things went, the conquests of Binyamin a little bit, Ephraim a little bit. And as we go north, we're going from south to north, we see Menashe didn't get rid of these, Issachar didn't get rid of these, and everybody ends up being sort of all mished in together with the six nations that are left. And what comes, what happens is over time, you know, you have you know, let's say randomly I'm choosing, uh, you know, Zavulun. So Zavulun's neighbors are the, the Kananim in the next village, right? Maybe they become friendly. Maybe there's some uh, connections between the families. Maybe there's some business deals. Perhaps they lose sight of the fact that, you know, they have other tribes they don't have the internet. They cannot be in touch with the rest of them. There becomes a separation. So we have a number of issues that really, really um, begin in Sefer Shoftim. And the basic issues are that there is a lack of unity, a lack of tribal unity. There's holes in the conquest, and there's a tremendous vacuum of leadership. After Yeshua died, that's a when Moshe Rabbeinu dies, before he dies, he says, Hashem, we cannot leave the Jewish people like a uh, sheep without a shepherd. But after Yeshua dies, there are elders that take over, but somehow there is no one strong figure to take over. This is not a good situation. So just before we go into the, the chapter itself, I prepared this introduction. I sent it to the chat, but I want to go over it with you. Not bad, not bad. 
an outline. So in a certain sense, Sefer Shoftim is like your, your English composition that they taught you how to write. An introduction, a body, and a conclusion. And by chapters, it goes like this. The introduction is what we're in. The first chapter tells us all of the problems, right? We're, we're, we're just going into it, how the tribes did not complete the conquest and where there were holes in it, tribal disunity, lack of leadership. And next week, Bezrat Hashem, we're going to start chapter three, and that's when we get the action. There are unbelievably exciting and fun stories in Shoftim, although all in all, it's a book that's, you know, it's got some, uh, you know, real downsides, but it's, it's a very, very, uh, it's a fun ride, a lot of good stuff in there. So that starts in chapter three. We already had a couple of uh, interesting stories in chapter one, but starting in chapter three, from chapter three to chapter 16, we go through the chronology of the judges. Chap at, at, at the end, chapter 17 to 21, will be, it's two stories, actually three stories. It depends how you count it, but they're stories that kind of not, they're not in the chronology. Those stories, the story of Pesel Micha, the story of Pelagish Begiva, the idol of Micha and the concubine of Geva. And these stories are just, you know, they are basically showing you the major um, corruptions of this time. And they're taken out of order. One has to keep in mind, I think I opened that for you here in, in the Gemara, in Baba Basra, that um, Yoshua Katab Sifro, this is the Gemara in Baba Basra, Yoshua wrote his book, and the last uh, eight Sukkim of the Torah, Shmuel wrote his book, Shmuel, and Shoftim, and Ruth. It's important to keep this in mind because Shmuel is really telling us stuff. Shmuel has a message. Shmuel is the one who is the bridge between the era of the judges and the era of the kings. And he has a message here through Sefer Shoftim. And you know, the, there's a rep repetition of a particular passage, the last five, ch uh, five chapters, which goes, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Each man did what was straight in his own eyes. And that's basically a refrain that we see at the end of Sefer Shoftim, which tells us the problems with the Sefer Shoftim, with the era of the Shoftim. And uh, Ruth is also a Shoftim story. Now, what we have to understand is that the phrase, Ein Melech Yisrael, it can be understood in a, in a literal sense. There was no king in Israel. So that Shmuel might be pointing out through the, the book of Shoftim that it's a problem when you don't have a king. But as you see in Sefer Shoftim, Shmuel is not so happy when there is a king. So then we have to go to the Midrashic meaning. When there is no king in Israel means when there's no God in Israel. And this is probably our first life lesson if we talk about this. It's all about Kaddish Baruch Hu. If Kaddish Baruch Hu is in the equation, then things go better. When the Jewish people take Kaddish Baruch Hu out of the equation, 
that's when there's trouble. Okay, now another thing I want to show you, an introduction here, I mentioned it last time, and I sent this to the chat. This is a famous cycle of Sefer Shoptim, okay? Uh, I, did a, I tried to make it a little nicer than the thing I sent first. If you take a look here, we start off with peace. Everything's going well. Then the Jewish people sin, right? And then God punishes them through their enemies. And then they cry out to Hashem to Tefillah. We're lucky they do tshuva, but mostly we, we see mostly tefillah. And then Hashem sends a judge to save them, and then we have more peace. This is the cycle of Shoktim that is a very major part of chapter two. We're going to look at it inside. But it's interesting to me that in many ways, this is the cycle of the Jewish people through the centuries. It's not really limited to Sefer Shoktim. Okay, so take a look here. This is where we like to start. In this particular edition, we can see the sections of chapter two. So chapter two has majorly three parts. Part one is verse one through five, Aleph to Hay, where an angel, it says Malach Hashem, but we'll see that it's actually a prophet, comes to Jewish people to rebuke them for their sins. Part two, from Pasuk Vav until Pasuk Yud, is the section where we recap the end of Sefer Yoshua in order to introduce part three, which is from verse Yud Aleph, mostly to Chaf Gimel, and that is the cycle that I just uh, showed you graphically, the cycle of what happens with the Jewish people. So let's uh, let's go ahead. Okay, and this is um, the text. Okay, Shoftim Perek Bey, Pasagala. Vayal Malach Hashem min ha-gilgal Now, the problem with this edition is that you don't see that there is a piskab emtza pasuk here. I'll show you here. You see this pay in this edition, right? Pasuk al continues here, right? But this edition is not showing you the break in the Pasuk, which is here. In some texts, you'll get a pay. Sometimes you get a samak. It's interesting. Pay is patuach. That means the end of the line is open and samach is, is sagur, and that means it continues on the same line after a gap. But what's the significance of having a paragraphing in the middle of a pasuk? Usually that means that the text is making a distinction between what Hashem says and what someone else says. So here we have the beginning here is a narrator, right? And the second half of the Pasuk is God speaking. So that's the reason there's a stop. I had to uh, show you that because in this edition, they don't, um, they don't show you that. I don't know why. Okay, so an angel of God. Now, what is a Malach? Malach is an angel, really. It's a person, a, a, a messenger, someone on a mission. Now, the Malach Hashem here, um, it's almost unanimous. Okay, I could not find any parashan that actually thinks this is an angel. See, because 
angels do not appear to large crowds. That would be strange, right? Um, you have angels appearing to different people in the Tanakh, to Abraham, later on in Shoftim, to, uh, to Gidon and to Shimshon's mother, but we don't see that as a general, you know, uh, you know, circus, like an angel comes. There's a gathering of the Jewish people here. And a, and a malach of Hashem, right, would probably be best expressed as a prophet, a messenger from God. Now, he comes up from Gilgal to a place called Bochim. Right, let's continue. And now Hashem is speaking, and that's why there's a stop in the middle, because now Hashem is speaking. Now, it's an interesting sort of, Aleh uh, is a future tense, and Rashi comments here that it's, I, I intended to take you out of Egypt and to bring you into the land that I promised to your forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So this is the beginning of what will be a rebuke. And let's, before we go into the rebuke itself, let's understand who the Malach Hashem is. And this is unanimous, basically. This is Rashi Zaya Pinchas. So let's talk about Pinchas for a minute. Who is Pinchas? Pinchas is um, the grandson of Aaron, who steps up at the time of the, uh, the sin of Baal Peor, at the end of Parshas Balak, at the beginning of Parshas Pinchas, which is named for him. And he, as a zealot, gets up and he kills Zimri, who is the prince of the tribe of Shimon. And he kills Kuzbi Batsur, who is a Midianite woman, the daughter of the king of Midian. And he kills these two as an act of zealotry. And Hashem rewards him what's called a Brit Shalom. And we seem to understand from the Brit Shalom that he becomes a Kohen Gadol. And after Elazar dies at the end of Sefer Yeshua, Pinchas is the Kohen Gadol. But there's more to the story than that, because Pinchas is a very unusual character. And part of the Brit Shalom seems to be an incredible longevity. He, you know, he just keeps popping up in Sefer Shoftim. Sefer Shoftim is one of the uh, books that covers the most, uh, uh, I wouldn't say the most, I don't want to go out on a limb, but it covers a tremendous amount of time chronologically, you know, close to 400 years. And Pinchas is there the whole time. So we see him, you know, way at the end, we see him at the beginning. And, you know, of course, Chazal say that, you know, eventually he kind of morphed into Elio and Nabi. They have very much in common. But what you have here is a person whose um, zealousness for God, his spiritual level is very, very great. He is a really uh, tremendous demut. He's a tremendous image. And if he comes to give a rebuke, that's going to mean a lot just by virtue of his own personality and who he is. Besides that, let's not forget that in the desert, the Jews were, were uh, punished with that generation died. So no one's left who saw the splitting of the sea. No one's left who was in Egypt who left slavery. Pinchas is, is like a lone 
remnant. He was there. So he's a person who comes to them and says, this is what God said. I'll take you out of Egypt and I'll bring you to the land. And he was there and he saw it. So this is a tremendous thing. And he's called a Malach because on many levels, he is a Malach. His spiritual stature is immense. And if you recall, those of you who learned with me, back in the story of Racha, the Zona, who was um, saved the spies in chapter two of Yeshua, we don't know the names of the spies, but when she hides them from the king of Yericho, it says, she hid him. And according to Chazal, she only had to hide one person because the two spies were Kaleb and Pinchas, and she had to hide Kaleb, but Pinchas was so angelic that he could sort of disappear. So we have a very interesting thing. And then let's look at Gilgal. What's Gilgal? Where is Gilgal? Gilgal, Gilgal if we go back to our map, Gilgal is here where the Jewish people first cross into the land. And Gilgal is the place where the Jews had a mass with Milah. The Mishkan was there for 14 years. They made their first pace up there. It's a holy place. It's a place of tremendous spiritual highs. And so if we go back here, we see that we have a great spiritual leader coming from a great spiritual place. And he's going to this place that's going to be named Bochim, which means crying, weeping. And we see that he's coming to tell the Jewish people, you have fallen so far from where you were supposed to be. And Akadosh who starts off by saying, I, I plan to give you the land, I plan to, to help you with everything, right? But you didn't follow through. And <clears throat> And this is what Hashem said, I told you. I told you, Atem, And I said to you, do not make a covenant with the people who live in this land. Destroy all of their altars. You didn't listen to my voice. What have you done? Now, interestingly enough, right, what is the Brit? Where do we see that the Jewish people made a Brit, a covenant? And it's interesting because you know, um, Pinchas is very much a figure of covenant. He gets a Brit Shalom. And now Hashem says, I made a covenant with Pinchas. He kept it. I gave him this covenant. I made a covenant with you, the Jews. I didn't want to abrogate my agreement. But you didn't keep it. And why? Because you made with, you made covenant with the dwellers in the land, which I told you not to do. Now, if you go back to chapter one, you'll find there is no actual covenant spoken out like that. But we see, oh, when they were able to, they called them, they had them to uh, pay taxes. They had them uh, work for them. Or like we made an agreement, you know, the MOE, this is your border, this is this border. What basically happened is the Jewish people did not perhaps make a peace treaty, but they certainly made agreements with these people. And Hashem's comment is, you didn't listen. What did you do? 
what have you done? And it's interesting because the Das Sokum says, the greatest tohafa is the simplest language. What did you do? And the Jewish people don't have an answer because they realize that they were foolish. So we have to try to examine it. Why didn't they do it? Why didn't they run to purify the land, to make the land free of these pagan, immoral, depraved influences? Why? Why didn't they do it? Now, it's very interesting. If you take a look here, um, there's a medrash in Tanzbeyaliyal Rabbah, okay? It's actually referred to the end of Shoftim, but there's something here that's very important. They should have, the, the greats of that generation, including Pinchas, this is rabbinic for the Lefet, they should have gone and to tie ropes of steel or, or iron around their waists and hitch up their robes. In other words, that's an expression for Zrizas. Um, get yourselves together. Go out there. A very, very strong indictment of the leaders of the Jewish people, you should have been going around. We need Chabad rabbis. We need people going around to town after town. Get yourself going, pick yourselves up and go out there and do Kirib and teach the Jews, teach them what they're supposed to do, right? Why didn't that happen? You need people to do outreach. It's a fascinating medrash. And they says, hey, Moa they didn't do that. When they came into the land, everyone came into their property and their vineyard and their field, right? And they said, my soul is good. I'm okay. Why should I worry about you, right? They didn't want to be bothered. An absolutely um, powerful indictment of the leadership of the end of the time of Yeshua and the beginning of the time of Shoftim. Where were the leaders? Why weren't they out there teaching? Why weren't they out there telling the Jewish people what they're supposed to do? That is the Medrash here. Um, I didn't give you the land so you should go and, you know, fatten yourselves. I gave you the land so you should learn Torah. Just do the things that I've taught you, right? Learn Derecharetz, learn how to be a good person. What, what, what have you done, Right? And this is really a very, very strong explanation. It's not the only answer, but it's definitely one of the answers. And I think that it's important to think about that. That's a condemnation of the leadership. Let's talk about the lay people, the ordinary people. The ordinary people are also greatly at fault. It's okay. 
Shalom alay nafshi. You know, um, uh, you know, in, in, in Candide, Voltaire says, I have to cultivate my garden. Everybody's busy with their own stuff. I don't want to go out to war anymore. Jews are not aggressors. We did our bit. We got enough. That's enough. Let's just, you know, chill. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they're busy. Maybe they just feel bad for them. Why are we being so aggressive? Why are we being so, you know, ethnic cleansing? Jews don't do that. Who knows what they taught themselves in to avoid doing what Hashem told them to do. But, you know, that's definitely one of our life lessons. It's not only the Yetzirah that makes you sin. It's also laziness. It's also laziness. It's also, you have to sometimes pull yourself together and go do something. It's sins of omission as well as sins of commission. We don't always have wild Yetzirahs to do stuff. And that's what leads us astray. And sometimes we just don't want to be bothered. And that will also cause a lot of trouble. So, you know, let it go is not always the answer. Okay, plus a gimmel. And I also said, right now, Hashem is saying, Rashi clarifies, now that I'm mad at you, okay, always understand when we talk about Hashem being angry, this is anthropomorphism. We never, God is not really angry. This is just the only way that we can interpret um, what God says and how he uh, expresses himself, right? I said, I'm not gonna let them, I'm not gonna chase them out anymore. You're done, I've done with that. They will now become tzidim, which we have to look at in a minute. They will become thorns, I suppose, in your sides and their gods will be a stumbling block for you. Now tzidim is tough. So the Mitsuda says it's from like uh, um, Matsud, for hunters, but it's basically saying they will make trouble for you. There's a number of different explanations, but basically, I'm going to leave them here now. You want you didn't want to get rid of them? Okay, now you're stuck. Enjoy. Okay, and their gods are going to be a stumbling block for you. Pasuk Dalid, and this is really lowering. Boom. God says, "You blew it, guys. You had your chance. Sorry. No more, Mister Nice Guy." You are left with all these people and they will not be fun for you. And I think it's very important for anyone who lives today, especially in our days in Israel or even in Chutzlaretz to understand we are living Sefer Shoftim. All those people that are still here, they are thorns in our sides. They don't make life easy for us. I don't you know, we obviously not in the same position as the Jews of that time, and we're not commanded to wipe them all out, and we're not supposed to throw them all out, but we have to be very conscious that it's not the way um, it, it, they're going, they can cause many problems for us. And when this messenger of God said these things to the children of Israel, they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the place Bochim because of this, this national wailing. They made sacrifices to God there. So this is the end of the first section. And we also have to examine that. 
What's their reaction to the stinging rebuke by this tremendously spiritual great person, this uh, Pinchas? God says, you blew it. You, you made a covenant with them and not with me, right? And I'm just going to let it go. I'm not going to chase them out anymore. You're stuck with them. And they cried. And what does the cry express? Remorse regret and understanding that they sin. What's missing from this story? What's missing? Right? Yeah. Okay, it's not here. There's Okay, I'm skipping, I'm not seeing this. It's her too. They regretted. Okay, so like, um, okay, I, I don't have time to go looking for, but I don't recall, but there's definitely something missing here. And that what's missing is commitment to do better. Tshuva has stages. The first stage of tshuva is recognizing that you did something wrong. You have to recognize it, you have to admit it, and then you have to feel regret and you have to commit to doing better. So the stages of tshuva here, which we're talking about right now so much because it's, we're heading for Rosh Hashanah, right? There's no tshuva here. There's no, oh, let's do better. Let's try better. Let's recommit ourselves to Kodesh Baruch And that's, that's definitely one of our life lessons. If you find that you've done something wrong and you, you're sad about it, the next step is to commit to do better. Somehow, take a step, find a way, commit in your mind or in your actions to do something that will pull you up from this pit. Okay, now what happens here in Pasuk Bob is part two of this chapter, as I showed you, and part two was sort of a recap of what came before. And it's interesting, and Rashi explains why. Now we know that Yeshua died, right? So we obviously are going back in time. We're having a flashback to um, the end of Sefer Yeshua. And Yeshua sent the nation and they went each man to his inheritance to inherit the land. Okay, and Vayishalach is not a Vayishlach, it's a PL, it's stronger. He sent them with a mission go and inherit your land. And Rashi says, this was earlier, but because we're now gonna say what they did wrong, now we're gonna go back and say what they did right, okay? It started in a good place. And we can't just say, oh, okay, they were terrible. Let's go back, you know what? How did this go? Let's examine the steps, Pasuk Zayin. Amit Hashem, Kol Yemei Yoshua, V'chol Yemei Hazken M'sher Harichu Yamei Machere Yoshua, Okay. And the nation served God all the days of Yeshua and all the days of the elders that lived long after Yeshua, who saw the thing of God, the, the actions of God, the Israel. It's a very, very important thing to pay attention to this context. These people, Yeshua, and the elders who lived long after Yeshua, they saw, they saw miracles. 
these people experienced it. The, the falling of the walls of Yericho, the splitting of the, the Jordan so that they come into the land of Israel, the stopping of the sun, right? All the great miracles that happened at the time of Yeshua, they saw it, right? All of those people saw it and they served God because they experienced God. Now, classic head. By Yamat Yoshua bin Nun Ebed Hashem ben Meab then Yoshua dies. Classic head, he dies 110 years, Ebed Hashem, servant of God. And they buried him in the border of his territory, he was Ephraim, in Timnat Cheres, in Har Ephraim, north of Hargash. We're going to come back to this thought in a minute. Okay. And also, that whole generation were gathered to their fathers, a euphemism for death. Right? And also, a generation came up, right, after those that didn't know Hashem. They didn't know the deed that Hashem did for Israel. So let's, let's take a good look at this, right? First of all, First of all, we see that the generations are changing. And I think it's important to pay attention here to Hasek um, Tet, okay? Yeshua dies. Everybody's, they saw the miracles, they follow God, call the same. Yeshua dies and they bury him. What is missing from this Hasek? They buried him. Go for comparison to the death of Aaron, to the death of Moshe. What's they didn't it? mourn him. Nothing. It's so bold. Who said that? Thank you. Okay, take a look here at the, um, here, I think this is it. Every person who sheds tears for a kosher person, a good person, HaKadosh Baruch who counts the tears and puts them in his storehouse, Shenema, this is Tehillim, Nenvav, Nenvav, right, Ruthie? Shenema, Nodisa Farta'ata, Right, you, you counted my wanderings, put my tears in your jug, right? Count them up. A person who is lazy in mourning a wise person, it is appropriate to bury him alive. Now, this is the quote from Sefer Yoshua, because here it says Timnat Serech, and in Shoftim it says Timnat Peres, right? But the point that we want to point out here is Hargaash. There is no place in Israel called Hargaash. Hargaash means a volcano. Melamed, this teaches us, this Pasuk, Sheragash Aleim Har Lahorgon, right? Um, 
this teaches us the mountain was so angry at their lack of mourning for Yeshua that it was about to bury the people who were burying Yeshua. That that's that's what Hargaash signifies to the Chazal. There's more to this here, but I don't we don't have to get into it. But here it says, We just had this lesson. They serve God all the days of Yeshua, all the days of the elders who live long after Yeshua. Amar leibum v'lai yamim herichu shanim loyricho. The 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 Chazal say, why does it say they they live long days? It doesn't say they live long years. Lemani bui mechem, right? What does it mean? Because they did not mourn Yeshua properly, their days were long, but their years were not long. Going back to our text. Okay, I want to point out here Timnath Cheres. Timnath Cheres and Timnath Serach are the same word in a sort of an anagram. So we spoke about it when we did say for sure that there were different midrashim about how the, the land was so fruitful that there was like, they, they actually fruit fell up the trees and were masriya. Uh, but here Rashi says, Timnath Cheres, Cheres is an expression for the sun. So, so Rashi says a beautiful thing here, that there was a picture of the sun. He says, They put a picture of the sun on Yeshua's grave to say, how sad is it that this man who made the sun stand still is now uh, lying in his grave. But okay, so we had this idea that they didn't mourn um, Yoshua, and I think that that's something we have to take away as a lesson for ourselves, that we always have to, um, you know, tolu lechet albeita aibel, right? Albeita mishter. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of celebration, right? This is something we have to do. We have to recognize that when we lose someone great, we have to be sad about it, and that is, um, it's not just you know, a, you know, oh yes, that's very sad, but it's also in this case, a lack of gratitude. This great person did great things for you and for the world, even if he didn't know that and you didn't know that. But for sure, the generation that were bearing Yeshua should have appreciated this great man, what he did for them and should have given him that gratitude and that honor. And that's a very great condemnation. Now, what do we have with this? They all died, and a new generation came. Now you have to feel the, the vibes of It sounds very much like Paro. Right? The new generation doesn't know God. How could it be that Paro didn't know Yosef? Of course he knew Yosef. This means. He didn't want to know Yosef. He didn't want to acknowledge the debt that the Egyptians owed the Jews. And here they didn't want to know God. They knew God, right? And then, they don't even pay attention to the things that happened. So this is something generational. And I think that the Mepharshim talk about it because one generation doesn't know God. The Mitzvah says, they didn't understand God. And then, the next part, the next generation, like later, they don't understand the deeds that God did for Israel. They didn't, 
already the, the action itself, like not that they just didn't understand God, they didn't even remember the stories. I remember the stories. And I think for us in our generation, in order to understand the progression here, we don't have to go further than thinking about the Holocaust. Because the Holocaust, right? The survivors, all, as long as the survivors are alive, they can tell us, this is what I experienced. This is what happened to me. This is where I went. This is what they did to me. But they're slowly dying out. So then you have the next generation. They know. They heard about it. But they're certainly removed from that horror. And as the generations go by, the younger people, they don't know. They don't know. There's, a, there's a guy who goes around, on, on uh, um, makes videos, and he talks to people. I, I, mean, I saw this. Um, and... He goes, he asks people what they know, like just random students on university campuses in America, like, you know, what's Auschwitz? They never heard of it. Never heard of it. What's the Holocaust? How many people die in the Holocaust? No idea. No idea. That's what happens. And we lose things in the mists of memory. So that's our next lesson. It says in Hazim, Zahar Yimot Olam, remember, remember, tell your children. And not only that, when it says, right, we have to be able to understand and connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's not just knowing. It's not just mitzvah anashim ulumada, just going through the motions. Oh, we keep our Shabbos and we do our kashas. We have to do whatever it takes to connect ourselves to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's really important to have a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In the Tochacha, it says, you didn't serve God with joy. Where is the joy? You had so much and you weren't happy. And we have to remember not only that, we have to give that over to others. If your parents, give it over to your children. Give them the joy of Yiddishkeit. Give them the joy of learning. Help them experience a Kaddish Baruch That's nothing to compare to that. If you go through life just doing the motions, then not the, eventually not just the not just the uh, connection is lost, but the actual reality is lost. Okay, which brings us to the third part, which is basically the cycle that we spoke about. Okay. Um, now what I want to say about the cycle, we're going to go through this, okay. What you have to understand here is that it's progressive. You know, people don't, you know, turn bad overnight. It starts and it continues, and then it just keeps going. You know, Cheryl Solange used to say, you know, the first time you do a sin, it's, you know, a terrible. The second time you get used to it, the third time it's a mitzvah. We just become inured to these things and we don't care anymore. So you might think that the language here is repetitious, but I'll show you that it's actually progression. And the children of Israel did evil in the eyes of God, and they served the Baal. And they abandoned Hashem, the God of their fathers, who took them out of the land of Egypt. The gods of the nations that are around them. And they bowed down to them and they angered God. 
So of course, these are not real gods. So that's why I pronounce the Pasukid Gimel. And they abandon God and they serve Baal Let's understand this. First, I, I, I looked on the internet, got you some nice images here. This is the kind of um, thing that the Baal looked like, if you could see this sort of, uh, you know, war god. And the Ashtoret were like the female gods. Actually, what Doc says, they were like uh, sheep, like funny, fat little sheep. And the Asherah, which is not mentioned here, but it's another form of Bodhisattva, were like tree gods. Like they would, uh, you know, make these images of tree gods. Right? Actually, uh, I believe that the Christmas tree is a pagan descendant of the Asherah worship. Now, if you follow the progression, what's happening here? They did evil eyes of God. That could be anything. That could be they didn't keep the mitzvot. They served Baal. Oh, now we're getting into Baal. So what happens? You're living in this pagan country. All around you are these idolaters. And they say, well, listen, if you want a good crop, so then you got to, you know, pray. You got to appease the God of the rain. And if you want to have children, you got to appease the goddess of fertility. And so, okay, you know, so Jews like to hedge their bets. Okay, so you know what? This God, I had nothing with problem with God, but I also have my, my lucky little Ashtoret, little, you know, fat little sheep there. And, you know, we want rain, so we'll dive into Baal. And it all is some kind of like chalent of well, everything together. And that's where it begins. Eliyahu says on Harakarmel, right? Why are you, what, till when are you choosing everything? You can't just choose one. But then what happens is they abandon Hashem and Hashem is the God of their fathers who took them out of Egypt. And that concept sort of, they leave that behind and they go after the other gods that are around them. Don't forget, these gods are very attractive because their rights have lots of, you know, nasty stuff going on. And, you know, you can have a lot of fun with this and there's all sorts of uh, bad stuff going on that we disapprove of but they bow down to them and God is getting very angry with them because look what you're doing. Along with the idolatry comes immorality. But then it comes the end and they say, oh, we don't need God anymore. We got these idols and we're having a lot of fun with them. And they serve only Baal and Ashtoreth. And the God's reaction is swift. Right? And God is angry now. The Harona is an expression of heat. I love the article, says his anger flare. Like, uh, no nostrils dilate when you think of someone that's angry, they're really angry. It's a very, very strong expression of anger. And God doesn't get angry, but we have to understand in our brains how this works. God is saying, okay, you know what, guys? By name, I chose He gives them over to the plunderers. Now, I'm and Dodi, we say, your plunderers should be plunder. Here we have sort of a Kaddish who's saying, okay, you don't want me in your life? I say, no, have fun. So God first withdraws his protection. So if you look at that, like, you know, there's plunderers all around these people. If God is not protecting you, they. So that's one of our lessons is to the degree 
that we allow a Kaddish Baruch in our lives, to that degree Hashem is involved in our lives, and to the degree that we push a Kaddish Baruch away, that's when he says, okay, you know, you want to do it on your own? Because in the have fun. Not so simple, right? And that's the Shosin, by a Shosotam, and they plundered them. Okay, now we're getting worse. Okay, again, just as the sin escalated from a little dabbling with the other idols plus God to eventually just forgetting God, so also the punishment escalates. Giving them over to the plunderers, other plunderers plunder them, but selling them to their enemies all around, that's a much stronger expression. So the Malmim talks about this. I don't have time to show you, but <clears throat> the Malmim says, I'm sorry, not the Malmim, the Medrash Mayamloes. The Mayamloes says, <clears throat> if you give a person a gift, right? So if you have a gift, so you, you have a certain amount of respect for a gift. So what about you? And gave it to you. And so you're like, oh, that's nice. So you take care of it. But... <clears throat> If you buy something, it's yours, you put down the money, and it's you, you, you're much more cavalier about it. So, you know, so his, uh, the Me'amloe says, Biyad Shosin, God gave them. But he still was had his hand on them because he gave them. But when he sold them, he just lost interest. You're now theirs. Enjoy. And also, Aivea Misabib is also stronger because. If, I mean, I, I just think of that as the, you know, the Gulf War, right? <laughs> I mean, you live through these things and then they're, they're in the history lessons for your children. When Saddam Hussein um, attacked us, right? So there was a whole balagan. It was a very strong uh, experience. I'll tell you about it sometime. But then it was over. The enemies around us, it never ends every day. Every day there's enemies in Israel. We live amongst them and they're always problematic. The third stage is they can't stand up. There's no way they can win. They're just losing and losing every skirmish. And this is already the fourth stage. Anytime they go out, God's hand is against them. Now we have God actively punishing them. It's not just a withdrawal and a let them go situation. It's like, I'll get you. Okay. And God's hand comes out against them, right? I God is mad it does against them for does bad things to them. And he's, he said it and he swore it. And the, why does he, why is it said twice here? It seems to be emphasis. God said this so many times. If you guys don't listen, I'm going to punish you. And there's a very beautiful medrash on the shot, meaning here is in everything that they went out, the hand of God was against them for bad. God was punishing them, right, for everything that they went out. But, right, the shot would be when they went out to war, God put his hand against them and they suffered at, in that war. The medrash says this is a reference to the story of Ruth, which is a Shoftim story, by Hebe Meshvara Shoftim, right? When Elimelech went out, the Cholashayatsu, those who went out, Elimelech and Machlon and Kilion, and they were all, God's hand was against them and he killed them. 
And the end, end result, that's the medrash, the interesting medrash. The end result is, they're in a lot of trouble. Now, if you remember our cycle, right? This is where it is. B'nai Israel sin. We saw the progression of the sin. Hashem punishes them through their enemies. We saw the progression of the punishment. Now we see they're very unhappy and they're crying out to God and God has mercy even though we don't see tshuva I find this very interesting in Sefer Shoktim very rare that when you get to this point in the cycle of Shoktim that they actually do tshuva and a Kaddish Baruch whose rachamim is so great that he takes the tefillah right Pasik Tetzayin by Yaakov Hashem Shoktim by and then God brings the judge and they save them from the hands of the plunderers, not necessarily the enemies around. But you know those Jews, stubborn troublemakers, they don't even listen to the judges. You can find them fighting with the judges about idolatry, right? And they still serve in the idols. So Right. They, they, they went very fast away from what God want, wanted. They didn't do what God wanted, right? Very, very uh, strong, right? But now we see, right, that, and the Malbim talks about this. The Malbim says, to the degree that they cooperate with the Shofei and they follow what the Shofei wants and they go back to Kodesh Baruch Hu, and they stop their sins, to that degree, the shofet is successful and the, the salvation of the time of that shofet is more complete, right? Okay, and when God, this is a sense of continuity, when the shofet was appointed, God was with the shofet, they saved them from the enemies, right? All the days of the shofet. So this is the, 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 the better situation when they're following what the shofet wants, when God helps them, right? Because God has mercy. They're crying out from the ones who pressure them and the ones who push them. The Malbim says, Pressure from outside, pressure from inside, the two types of enemies, the enemies that are far, enemies that are near, and Hashem's mercy is eternal, and he always has pity when the Jews are suffering, and when you cry out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he sends them the help. But then, and that's a lesson for us to remember, when you're in trouble, cry out to Hashem, even if you don't deserve it, Hashem, hears your cries. Right. And sad to say, right, it was that when the Shofei dies, they returned and they were more corrupt from their father. To serve those idols, to follow them, and bow down to them. What we generally see in Sefer Shoftim is that cycle after cycle, every generation goes down a little bit more. 
So when we finish with one judge, right? So the Jewish people have, you know, followed God during the time of that judge, and then they go right back. And it's a very, very sad thing. A Kaddish said to them, these people are going to cause you to sin. We're going to see in the next chapters how this happens, right? The intermarriage starts, the idolatry continues. It's very problematic. We're at a time. So just we'll finish the last few psukim. Hashem Yisrael and God says, because you didn't listen, you <coughs> didn't keep the covenant, you didn't listen to my voice, I also am not going to continue. I promise to let them out. You're done. I will not continue to expel people from before you from these nations, the ones that Yeshua left when he died, Pesachabet. And here we have a new element, Chafbet. Laman nasot bam et Yisrael, hashomrim hei mederech Hashem, lolechet bam, kasher shemu avotam imlo. In order to test, Pasek Chafbet, to test Israel, will they keep the path of Hashem to go in that path as their forefathers did, or will they not? Pasek Chaf Gimel. And God had left these nations, right? Not to expel them quickly. And he didn't give them over in the hands of Yeshua. So let's just try to understand what's happening here. As a result of the cycle, right? We see that again and again, the Jewish people sin, are punished. God forgives them. He sends them a shofate. But as an as a, a global comment, Hashem is saying, the era of the conquest is over now. The fact that the Jewish people had a slow conquest was for many different reasons. Hashem didn't want them to uh, be overrun by animals. Hashem wanted it to be gradual. It wasn't supposed to be, you know, what they call in Israel's bang begamarnu. The conquest took time. This is not a sin, and this is not a punishment. That was the way it's supposed to play out. But once Yeshua dies, then the Jewish people don't finish the conquest. That's the sin. And interestingly enough, because Yeshua is God, and the Jewish people did not fulfill, uh, finish up the conquest, right? Now that becomes, ironically enough, the Mida Kneged Mida, the poetic justice. Now you can't. Whatever you did, you did. Whatever is left, you can't. But as a result, we're now not in a static position either, because now, Baruch Hu says, this mitzvah, you blew it, it's over. Now you're going to live with these people. But now it's a test. Now I'm going to see, you're going to be living amongst these people. Can you withstand the temptations of the other nations, of their idols, of their depravity? Can you withstand that and stick with HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Now we're going to be tested. And I think that we'll leave that for our, our last life lesson. Life is really a test. Life is really a test. Every circumstance that you find yourself in, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is really telling you. This is the way. Are you going to keep the Derech Hashem or not? 
right? And that's, um, that's basically where we're going. And then the Chav Gimel is actually kind of segues into Paragimel, saying these are the nations that God left, but we'll 